This podcast was recorded during the COVID-19 pandemic of 2020. Never get tired of being Beatles. I can hear when I play the drums, then I play a guitar, and I too play a guitar. What? Is he dead? Sit you down, Father. Rescue. Take 12. Hey, what? Can we just have a little less guitar in the earphones? Oh, that's all right. Yeah, it's not bad that one. Keep that one. Mark it fab. Hello and welcome to The Walrus Was Paul, a series of podcasts hosted by me, Paul Romanuk, during which we will take a stroll along the cast iron shore and peel off the layers of the glass onion with our musical guests as they discuss their favorite Beatles or Beatles solo album. Now you can follow the podcast on Twitter or Instagram at the handle the underscore Romicast. That is the underscore Romycast, uh, Romycast spelled R-O-M-Y-C-A-S-T. That's the underscore Romycast. Uh, any questions, concerns, comments, great place to interact, Twitter or Instagram. Uh, there's also a Facebook group page. If you'd like to join, do a search on Facebook for The Walrus Was Paul Podcast. Ask to join, and I will sort that out. We've got uh, coming up on 40 members, so why don't you be the next one? The podcast website is romicast.com that is romicast.com if you go there you can find out more information about me and you can find information and each and every episode that we have done so far and also if you see fit you can make a donation to support keeping the show commercial free this is something that I've just introduced a funny old world I'm a content creator in a world that doesn't always like to pay for content so any help would be greatly appreciated go to the website at the bottom of the page click on the donate button any amount would be greatly appreciated and click on the button and it'll be taken care of very quickly also if you don't already please do subscribe to the show via your favorite podcast provider and if you could leave a positive review or rating greatly appreciated and thanks in advance My guest today is songwriter Christopher Ward. Christopher co-wrote the million-selling song in 1989 global number one, Black Velvet, by his then-girlfriend Alana Miles. He has also written for Diana Ross, Amanda Marshall, Peter Cetera, The Backstreet Boys, just to name a few off the top of my head. He had a couple of solo hits of his own in Canada back in the 1970s. He was the Juno Award winner for Songwriter of the Year in 1990. And then later in the 90s, just to top off a great decade, he appeared in two Austin Powers films. He was part of the band Ming T in the film, so the guy's done a lot. But many of us know Christopher mostly for his role as one of the first music VJs on Canadian television. 
first on Toronto City TV and then the national Much Music Music Channel, Canada's equivalent of MTV. It launched in 1984. And during his career there, Christopher had occasion to interview dozens of great artists. I'm going to put a few links up on the Facebook group page to some of those interviews. You can find them up on YouTube. Uh, The high watermark as it pertains to this show, he interviewed both Paul McCartney and George Harrison. I'm envious. (laughs) These days, Christopher is putting the finishing touches on a solo album, his first in many, many years, so we can look forward to that. And he is also working on a weekly podcast where he and co-host Tom Jokic trawl through an extensive archive of interviews with some of the biggest musical artists of the last 50 years. That podcast is called Famous Lost Words. That's Famous Lost Words. And it's available wherever you get your podcasts. You can find out all about all things Christopher, and there's a lot to find out by visiting his website, ChristopherWard.ca. That's ChristopherWard.ca. So Christopher Ward, songwriter, singer, broadcaster, and writer, and today, plain old Beatles fan. Christopher, thanks so much for joining me to talk about the Beatles. What a pleasure it is to welcome you. Oh, Paul, it is truly my pleasure. Uh, so let's let's get right to this. I, I like to start off just to establish the, the sort of grounding. What are your first recollections of the Beatles in your life? Well, I mean, I was the perfect age of 13 when the Beatles came along. And uh, probably, you know, seen them on the Ed Sullivan Show, but I'd heard the records before then. Um my mother was a saint when I think about how many times I played She Loves You on that little 45. And uh, they just became, you know, part of the fabric of my life and have, have stayed thus ever since. You were right in that sweet spot of music for most of us, late teens, early 20s. Uh, you know, that's when you're, you're, you're taking on your musical identity and it, it means so much to you. And you were right there at the height of Beatlemania. So I want to ask you as a guy who didn't get to experience that, uh, what was it like to experience the roller coaster of styles that the Beatles went through from 63 to 70? I mean, was every new record an event? Did you run down and go, wow, I, I got to get this today? What, what was it like? I think you're right. Every new record was an event. I mean, because I was a kid, um, I don't think I was keeping track of the technical development of the Beatles. It was just like, wow. You know, when every new record came, it was just, and my friends and I would all get together and we'd listen over and over and over and pick the songs apart. But we didn't do so with a musicologist's point of view at all. We just did it out of pure and you know, total affection for the group and what they meant to us. Um, but, you know, when you think about that, like, we're gonna, I know we're going to talk about Help today. I was thinking about when Help came out, and it was actually um, 55 years to the day tomorrow. And, yeah, and uh, so the summer of 1965... But then I was also reflecting on what I did in the summer of 67, which is sitting in the backyard of a girlfriend with a bunch of friends. And she had a portable record player that she could pull out into the yard, listening to Sgt. Pepper for the first time. And just thinking about the amount of musical growth, I know that people have reflected on this frequently, I'm sure, but it still blows my mind when I think about them going from, you know, Ticket to Ride to Strawberry Fields forever. 
Well, let's just pull on that thread a bit because it, so we'll get to Pepper in a second. But again, along that thread of what it was like to experience the Beatles in, in real time, so to speak. What did Revolver do when you when you put that on and heard Tomorrow Never Knows and Eleanor Rigby? Well, um, that is to this day my favorite Beatles album. So you hit the sweet spot, Paul. <laughs> um it's funny that you mentioned it because I was remembering, you know, various sort of stories related to the Beatles, you know, to bring to today's conversation. And you're, I, you, as you know, I interviewed George Harrison. One of the things he was talking about was when they started to experiment. And he said, um, yeah, you know, we got into the avant-garde, avant-garde a clue was his <laughs> typical Harrison humor. But he said, yeah, we, we did this little song called Tomorrow Never Knows. Do you know it? And I'm like, yeah, I, I know the song, George. He says, yeah, it was on this record we had called Rubber Soul. I'm going, no, it wasn't. But I did, I did not critique him. I did not correct him. I was, um, I was gonna, how can you correct a Beatle? Okay. Well, you don't. <laughs> yeah. uh, you just don't. Because I think and there was he did one other interview the same day that he did mine. And I think the interviewer made the mistake of jumping in on something that he was saying. And he said to her, um, if you don't mind letting me finish, it was like, oh. like if George Harrison had said that to me, I would have just taken my lavalier microphone off, put it on the chair, left the building, and he was never heard from again. Oh, you'd be, <laughs> you would be crushed. Yes, yes, you would, would be. Yeah, death by interview. For so, sure. so, so now tell me about Pepper. I have one other one other buddy who uh, he grew up in Winnipeg, and he experienced again that that hearing Sgt. Pepper in 1967 when you'd never heard anything like it before. And he says, uh, which plays right into the, the, the sort of Pepper mythology, that they spent that summer, you would go to a buddy's house and you would sit around and you would listen to this record. And then a couple nights later, you'd go to somebody else's house and you'd listen to it. Was it really like that? Well, certainly my friends and I were pretty obsessed with that music. And as mind blown as, as kids can be listening to, to a record. So, yeah. Um, I have a recollection involving Winnipeg as well. This was when I saw the movie Help and I managed to get frostbite standing in line. <laughs> no surprise that you get your frostbite in Winnipeg where I lived uh, for a, a year with my family. Um, so why have you chosen Help? Why is that the album that you want to talk about? When my daughter was three years old, my then wife decided she wanted to have a girlfriend's weekend away and she would entrust me with our precious daughter. And when she left, when it came entertainment time that night, I thought, I've seen enough Madeline videos for a lifetime. <laughs> and yes, the Elmo sharing tape has its assets, but it was time for help. So I pulled help out and we watched it together. And without a word of exaggeration, we watched Help every night for three months. She was obsessed with the music and the film. And of course, in particular, Paul McCartney, the young Paul. She didn't realize that in you know, the intervening years, he maybe changed and aged a little bit. In fact, she was so obsessed, she wanted to marry Paul. She was three, remember? 
And so uh, her grandmother made her uh, a wedding dress and very accommodatingly would play Paul and they would get married in the backyard <laughs> at her place. <laughs> Um, her favorite song is uh, You Got to Hide Your Love Away, and it, uh, it, I think it's probably still to this day. So when I gave her a turntable two years ago, she's 24 now. Uh, when I gave her a turntable two years ago, of course, the first album I gave her was Help. So. Well, we'll get back to the film in a second. I just want to I just want to give a little bit of context here, which is what, what I like to do before we delve right into the discussion. So Help was recorded in 1965, as you know, specifically as a soundtrack for the movie of the same name. 65 was the last time that the Beatles released two full albums of newly recorded material in the same calendar year. The last Beatles album to not be made up entirely of original compositions, uh, Act Naturally, Dizzy Miss Lizzie are on Help. That's the last one, not counting the 40 seconds of Maggie May on uh, Let It Be. So Help, <laughs> Help came after the Beatles for Sale which had been released in December of 64, and before Rubber Soul, which came out in December of 65. Later that year, Help came out August 5th, 1965 in the UK, and of course a completely different version, which we'll talk about later, was released in North America on August 13th and 65. Global sales through 2017 estimated at 9.8 million which places it as their sixth best-selling of the original catalog behind Magical Mystery Tour and ahead of Hard Day's Night. So in 64, Beatles had their first tour of North America, starting August 19th in San Francisco at the Cow Palace, ended on the 18th of September in Dallas. They participated in a charity show in New York City on the 20th, back to the UK. Then they were back into EMI Studios, as they were known then. They're now called Abbey Road Studios. On the 29th of September, to start sessions to complete Beatles for Sale that they'd started before their North American tour. So they juggled the recording work around a UK tour. Final mixing wrapped up November 4th. UK tour ran until November the 10th. I Feel Fine, She's a Woman comes out on November 27th. Number one single around the world. They make a bunch of UK TV appearances to promote the new single and forthcoming album. Then they wrap up 64 with an extended run for their Christmas pantomime show at the London Hammersmith Odeon. Uh, 20 shows over the course of a few weeks. Had about a month off and then on February 15th, back into EMI Studios to start work on songs for a film they were to start shooting on the 23rd. They needed to have working versions of these songs finished so that they could mime them for the movie. So thus, they really went to work, the boys did. They recorded, between the 15th of February and the 20th of February, 11 songs. 11 songs, uh, six of which they used in the movie. So I say all that to say this. As a guy who's made his living in the music industry... Have you come across any other musicians in your career who had this kind of output along with this demanding a schedule? I find it astounding when I read about that. I don't think so. I mean, that I mean, part of the reason they were that prolific was because that was the expectation at the time. And we can't forget, too, that aside from all of those albums, which just came rolling down the pipe, you know, to a to a year there were the singles which weren't even included on the albums. That to me is one of the most extraordinary things. I mean, we made reference earlier to um, Strawberry Fields. I mean, you think about the fact that Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane was released as a single and was not included on an album. 
Can you imagine what Sgt. Pepper would have sounded like with those two songs added to it? I mean, it's breathtaking to think. So, I mean, I guess they were in their prime, creatively speaking. But Brian Epstein was squeezing every last nickel out of his, you know, golden geese as he possibly could. Uh, whether it was the bad merchandising deals he made or the touring that they did around making records with the priority, I believe, more on the touring than the album making. But, you know. So so let's let's get to the film a little bit before we get into the album. Uh, it, it was shot between Feb 23rd and May the 11th. Uh, of 65 in Austria, the Barbados, various locations around London, and at Twickenham Film Studios, which is in sort of west, extreme west London. Uh, released in the UK on July 29th, uh, and then over in the US uh, a short while later, as you said, we're right around the date. It cost approximately a million and a half dollars to make they did about 12 million at the box office when you watch it now does it date well is it is it still is it still a fun movie where does it sit in your you sort of rock and roll movies pantheon i think it's a great film i mean there were many years when the uber coolness of hard day's night was regarded as being the sort of the untouchable ultimate beatles movie and it was cool. It was their first. It was in black and white. It was the, the first sort of expression of the, that playfulness that they brought to the camera and the improvisational sort of, uh, you know, feeling of the film. And Help was kind of like the weak sister in that group, right? Um, and I think, you know, it was like, oh, we got to crank out another movie. There was that aspect to it. I think it has aged well. And I think its, it's reputation has come back, if you will. Um, because you look at it and it is just pure joy, pure rock and roll joy. How do you bottle that? You know, how do you get that on a screen? Well, they did it again. And the whole thing when I watch it, uh, Christopher, is it's, it's kind of a, a good-natured spoof of a James Bond film, really. That's, that's right. the whole thing. Now, what I wanted to ask you is, do you think that your pal, Mike Myers, was influenced at all by help and that sort of James Bond British spoof when he did the Austin Powers films that you were involved with. I remember I was spending time with Mike in those days and he referenced a lot of different pictures. Now, he would have been absolutely aware of help. He's a total Beatles fan as well. But he was watching, I remember primarily, um, obviously the Bond pictures but also um, the ones that were kind of parodies of the Bond style. Because it had, and I love the Austin Powers films like millions, uh, but it, it had, to me, a little bit of that fun element of help. And I always wondered whether or not he was influenced a little bit by that as well. Uh, the sort of Well, when you look at the opening sequence of the first Austin Powers movie with the chase scene and the Quincy Jones music and all of that, that's pure Hard Day's Night. I think. Yeah, yeah. You know, where he's like hiding behind the newspaper and all, you know, all, <laughs> That's right. all the visual gags, you know? Yep, yeah. yep. Uh, so let's get, we'll get to the album now. So two releases, the British release, now the yes. official version, uh, with the same approach as Hard Day's Night UK version. So songs from the movie on one side, new songs not in the movie on side two. Then in North America, like A Hard Day's Night uh, in the North American release, 
songs from the movie, but then interspersed with instrumental tracks from the movie. So the North American version contains Help the Night Before, You've Got to Hide Your Love Away, I Need You, Another Girl, Ticket to Ride, and You're Going to Lose That Girl. Held Back and then used on other capital concocted Beatles albums were Act Naturally, It's Only Love, You Like Me Too Much, Tell Me What You See, I've Just Seen a Face, Yesterday, and Dizzy Miss Lizzie. We'll come to those a little bit later on. So let's we're going old school here, my friend. We're going to take the vinyl out of the jacket, put it onto the <laughs> turntable, and it is side one and cut one, and the track is... Help, I need somebody Help, not just anybody Help, you know I need someone Help Seven weeks into shooting the movie, working title of Eight Arms to Hold You With, they didn't fancy writing a song that could work that title in, so it became Help, <laughs> and they came up with the song. What uh, What are your thoughts on that tune? I love that song um, dearly. It... Um, John Lennon has described that, I think, as one of the first mature songs that he wrote uh, because he said he was really writing autobiographically for the first time in his career. Um, and when you put that side by side along with uh, Hide Your Love Away, um, it, they feel personal. And um, I mean, of course, it's you know, a byproduct of imagination as well as you know, lived experience like, like any art. But it's the fact that it just comes ringing out of the speakers, that it is just as pure, raw exuberance musically. But the underside of it is that there is this cry for help by John Lennon. And that's an amazing thing to me. His uh, interview with Playboy that he did in 1980, shortly before uh, he was uh, murdered, uh, he said, The whole Beatles thing was just beyond comprehension. I was subconsciously crying out for help. I was fat and depressed, and I was crying out for help, is what he said. Mm. Uh, and then to your point, Christopher, uh, the great writer Ian McDonald describes the song as the first crack in the protective shell that Lennon had built around his emotions during the Beatles' rise to fame, an important milestone in his songwriting style. It's interesting yeah. that it's such a fast, a high-tempoed song, though. It, it's, all, it's almost like the music says one thing and the lyrics say something else. Well, they get along quite well, though, don't they? Um, yeah, I mean, that, that is the miracle of the song in many ways. Uh, but, they, but it never felt out of tune with itself thematically at all to me. And of course, when I was a kid, I didn't question it. I just loved it. <laughs> and it um, interesting too with the background vocals from a songwriting point of view. They they anticipate the melody lyrics rather than responding. So you get the I never need I never needed anybody's, and then yeah. and now I find and now I find. Which yeah. usually they it's more common to echo them, is it not? When you're writing a song. I think you're right, and, and that is an interesting point about it. Um, but they were the masters of doing that. That was one of the real hallmarks of their sound, were those, uh, you know, those, those incredible background vocals. I think, you know, Lennon McCartney said their blend was based on the Everly Brothers. Uh, but I hear other influences of the era as well, especially Motown, because you think about the staggered vocals of like a Smokey Robinson or the Four Tops or that kind of thing. 
And I'm sure that they were devouring those records as they came out. It is always fun to look uh, in the Ian McDonald book, uh, Revolution in the Head. Uh, he gives a he's great at putting things in context where you will look and, and he will have what was in the charts around the time the Beatles were writing said song and you can go oh right. yeah so they were in, or what was in the news or what was popular in theater or pop yeah. culture and it's they uh, they really did they they really drank it in now as much as you have a we need a song for a movie right which is what this was uh we've talked about the big personal element there too which which brings me to what you've done i mean you've written hit songs for other people to sing uh black velvet famously with tyson for alana miles uh with david tyson i can't wait with uh brooke mcclament and matthew gerard for hillary duff what i'm wondering is as a songwriter when you're writing for somebody else, does it deprive you of being able to write in a confessional way at all, or can you still do it? That's a really good question. <laughs> I mean, I do ponder those things, and I'm particularly pondering it now because I'm in the process of making a record for the first time in many years. Um, and I've truly spent my career in service to others, other artists, trying to help usually young artists, but not always, uh, to tell their story, to help them find their voice. And you have to create things for them, particularly lyrically, that are believable coming out of their mouths. So it's a job, but it's a fantastic job, and I love doing it. Um, I try to bring whatever artistry I have to the room, no matter what kind of a process it is, or no matter who's involved, or how many writers, or what the, um, you know, the job of the day is. Have you ever, do you feel, and, and I don't know if you can come up with an example or not, but put a little bit of yourself into a song that somebody else is singing, and even though they might not have known that, but you knew that? <laughs> uh, well, there's a song that I wrote with Dave again for Amanda Marshall called Beautiful Goodbye, and uh, that was on her first album. And that song, I think, was about the longest it ever took me to write a song. It took me about three months to write the lyrics to that song because Dave had given me this piece of music that, to my ears, was so beautiful. I was sort of intimidated trying to match what he had already accomplished. And I think there's a lot of personal experience in that song, but I certainly didn't tell that to Amanda at the time. <laughs> I don't think she would have cared, honestly. But... <laughs> One other nerdy fact about the song, a couple of them actually, uh, that descending lead guitar riff that precedes each verse, uh, was yeah. it was a little bit difficult for Harrison to do. So by they got by the time they got to take four, they said, let's do that as an overdub so you can take as many runs at it as you want. That's sort of... Oh. Uh, right. And then the vocal is different on the mono mix than it is on the stereo mix. Lennon's voice is a little rougher in the mono mix. So off to your turntable to see if you can hear that. I know. So it's a completely different vocal? Yeah. Yeah. Different vocal from mono Ooh. to stereo. And, and, okay. you, and you can you really hear it if you play them one after another. Uh, of course. I, I pre actually prefer the mono one. It's a little rougher. 
Yeah, I mean, I always listen to the mono version of Hell, so it never occurred to me to, to go a beam them. But okay, thanks for the tip. <laughs> <laughs> Your Beatles nerd facts are available free of charge. Just, yeah, just well, give me a call. I'm, I'm <laughs> the right place, huh? <laughs> so let's go on to cut two. And uh, you referenced a few moments ago the harmony vocals, which to me, when I look at this album, I mean, you just go, help, night before, uh, you're going to lose that girl. I mean, there's just so many of them where they're singing those beautiful Beatle three-part harmonies. This is one of them, The Night Before. It was recorded during a session on February 17, uh, during which they also recorded, same session, George Harrison's You Like Me Too Much. And the big thing that they used was that uh, Honer Pianette electric piano. Uh, sort of that little unique sound on there. We said all goodbye I think of help as being, and this is going to sound like heresy, but as being kind of John Lennon's record. Maybe it's because of the title and because I see the growth that he made as a songwriter, which fascinates me. I mean, Paul McCartney's still, you know, one of the greatest songwriters ever to walk the earth. Don't get me wrong. And I love his contributions to this record, but they seem more in line with all that he had done before. Whereas, particularly Hide Your Love Away and Help, to me, step out so much. Um, so the night before, I love it. I mean, it's just a wonderful, like, sing-along kind of a song. But uh, it doesn't move me as much as some of the others. Uh, Paul McCartney plays the... They were getting into multi-tracking here much more, uh, where they were using two four-track machines uh, to have eight tracks and do reductions. And as a result, uh, he was he's a guy, and you've interviewed him, which we'll talk about later, but he's a guy who knows what he wants. And he started, yeah. to, around this time, he played a lot of his own lead guitar solos in his songs, including in this one. Um, you know, because I would guess he knew the sound that he wanted. And you always wonder if, as, as a lead guitar player, George Harrison, how much that would have put his nose out of joint. Well, how do you spell control freak? I mean, it's like, he, I'm sure, was well used to, uh, you know, McCartney calling the shots the way that he wanted. I mean, it's like, this is more a coda to all of that, but you think about that infamous conversation on Let It Be, right? Where it's like, yeah, Paul, I'll do whatever you want. Just tell me what to play. I can't remember if that was the exact quote, but it was along those lines. Yeah, you know, yeah. Like, yeah, whatever. Yeah, just tell me, you know. Yeah. Um, and if and if someone to be as talented as McCartney, if he can play that that well, go for it, right? <laughs> you know, why not? Uh, and again, that distinctive. The, the Beatles were kind of cool at around this time, especially picking up some of the instruments in the the Abbey Road studio that were there for them to use. And one of them was this pianet electric piano, so sort of a mini piano. And they used it on You Like Me Too Much. It was the same session. They later used it on Getting Better and I Am the Walrus. But the thing that's always <laughs> struck me about the Beatles, Christopher, with be it the sitar, uh, the pianet, um, they, they had incredible taste. They didn't overuse it. 
It, it didn't show up on every track. It didn't show up on several albums. It was just a few tracks on a couple of albums. Something to be said for that kind of taste. Yeah, you wonder how much of that restraint was courtesy of George Martin. Because I think they were kind of wild-eyed experimenters at that point. It was like anything that was in, in the view was going to be tried. And as time went by and records went by, as we all know, they became increasingly experimental. Um, and I think George kind of tamped that down, the George Martin, that is, tamped that down. I think that, the, that, that George Martin enjoyed the challenge as much as they enjoyed challenging him. It's like, okay, let's mess with George and see what we can see how far we can push him on this. And I think he just kept responding to each new new thing they wanted to hear. So cut three on side one, you've referenced it a couple of times. The first all acoustic Beatles track. Clear, clearly I would say an homage to Bob Dylan. You've got to hide your love away. Here I stand head in hand. Turn my face to the wall If she's gone I can't go on Feeling too foot small Paul, the first time that I heard that song was on the radio that one year that I lived in Winnipeg, of course, because that was the year that Help came out. And I was electrified by the song metaphorically speaking. <laughs> I raced down to the record store the next day and I said, I heard this amazing song called Hide Your Love Away. Is it the new Bob Dylan single? Wow. <laughs> and they said, no, no, haven't heard that one yet. And I went home <laughs> without it. <laughs> so, I mean, let's face it. The, the influence back and forth between those two acts was... I think growing at that point. There's no question that John Lennon was very influenced by Dylan, and he, I'm sure, would have been the first to tell you that. But I think the influence went the other way. And some would say, you know, the, the gesture of Dylan picking up an electric guitar and changing his sound dramatically uh, was, you know, at least partially influenced by the Beatles. Well, in the irony of putting things together with hindsight, again, context, when you look at this, while the Beatles were emulating that acoustic uh, Dylan from another side of Bob Dylan, which came out in August of 64, very acoustic Bob Dylan album, while they were emulating that with You've Got to Hide Your Love Away, Dylan, it, and it wasn't out yet, so they wouldn't have known, but he had just finished recording bringing it all back home where half of the album was folk, but half of it, he was backed by an electric rock band and he'd been influenced to go electric in part by the Beatles. So it's interesting while they were recognizing his genius as a great acoustic artist, he was kind of being influenced by them with bringing it all back home. You got me thinking about hearing Dylan at that time. And I remember the first time I heard, um, like a Rolling Stone on the radio. Now that changed my life. That was, if there was a song, you know, despite my love of the Beatles, there was one song that just completely picked me up off the ground and shook me and, you know, maybe go, you can write about that. <laughs> you know, it just was one of those moments. Um, 
And I was curious, so I looked at what the charts were at the time, and I think it was right behind Mrs. Brown, You've Got a Lovely Daughter. <laughs> Just to show you <laughs> the variety of things that we had to choose from in those days. Well, that, that, that's right up there with the uh, Release Me by Engelbert Humperdinck, keeping Strawberry Fields Forever and Penny Lane double A side <laughs> single from being number one. It was never number one. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Um, now the uh, oh, I say on Hydra Loveaway, but you're gonna because before you move on to something else, I just want to mention Hydra Loveaway was the first Beatles song uh, that ever had an outside musician on it, and that was the flautist that who played the uh, really pretty part of the end of the song. Well, a, a gentleman named John Scott. Who, oh, of course you would know. <laughs> <laughs> who at the time... What was I thinking? <laughs> he, he, he was a sort of the house arranger, or one of them, uh, at EMI at the time. And you know, I mean, this is a pretty cool thing to have in your... You know, a feather in your musical cap. You you played the, the flute solo on uh, You've Got to Hide Your Love Away. But he wrote musical scores for Anthony and Cleopatra, England Made Me, North Dallas 40. He wrote a song called Gathering Crowds, for a stock music library that was later picked up and used as the opening theme for years for This Week in Baseball. Remember that show, the big highlight show that used to run? Wow. That's So there is a Beatles connection everywhere. Wow. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm I'm reeling. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it, it's a lovely song, though. It, it is a lovely homage to Bob Dylan. And, and Lennon admitted, he said, it was my Dylan period. Uh, McCartney's quoted as saying, it's just basically John doing Dylan. Uh, but, oh, I think that sells it short. You think? Oh, yeah. I think it's a great song. Um, aside from the fact that it's my daughter's favorite song. I mean, it just, it's still... Um, I mean, like so many of their greatest songs, the compactness of it and the emotional wallop that you get in that short period of time and, and the fact that it can still happen. I mean, you wouldn't be doing this show uh, if you didn't have a deep affection, aside from just pure nerdism, you know, about the Beatles. And that's why I'm here. Um, and tell me that there isn't a moment where you hear a song you heard you know, a hundred, a thousand times before. And then once again, it just whacks you right in the solar plexus and you go, oh my God. And, and for whatever reason, whether it's something that's happened in your life, whether it's context, whether it's where you are or you're listening on headphones and you hear something you missed last hundred thousand times, that's pretty powerful evidence of the durability of a song as well as the band. It, it is. It's amazing. I mean, I've yeah, I joke about the nerdiness and I've read a lot about the band, but first and foremost, I come to it from the same place you do. I, I love the yeah. music. It touches me deeply. I still get a, a lump in my throat when I listen to the song She's Leaving Home. Uh, just such a, it's like a Harold Pinter play. You know, it, it's just so beautifully written and sad, and it, it's it's amazing. You know, fifty year, fifty plus years later. Now, just did, just to get back to your Dylan thing. So you, you talked about uh, like a Rolling Stone. If if you're you're putting them down, songwriters, greatest songwriters of all time, Lennon McCartney partnership, Bob Dylan. Who does it for you? It's. It's different. It's chalk and cheese. It's it's two different things, apples and oranges, whatever <laughs> analogy you'd like to make. 
I mean, the very fact that they're a partnership uh, redefines the nature of the work that they do. It's re- I find it really fun to um, listen to a Beatles song and figure out who wrote what section. I mean, for the most part, it's transparent because it's depending on who's singing it. But, you know, it's also just the, 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 the music. Like, if, if they weren't singing, let's say somebody else, let's say the very first time you heard We Can Work It Out, and that first part comes in, you know, try to see it my way. Okay. Well, there's cheerful little Paul. He's going to keep a really positive attitude. <clears throat> hey, honey, we're going to get through this thing. Not so fast. <laughs> <laughs> Donald McIntyre goes, life is very short and there's no time. So, you know, I mean, that's, that's genius how those two musical souls manage to fit together to create work. Um, I think what Dylan does is different. Um, I know that's a bit of a hedge on your question. I'm going to continue the hedge on it. <laughs> <laughs> you hedge away. Uh, we'll, we'll move to cut four. And it's, it's uh, I Need You by George Harrison. It was from the same session where they recorded, which didn't get used in the movie. It turned up as a B-side later on. The uh, brilliant, intricate harmony song, Yes It Is which was, uh, that was a B-side for Ticket to Ride. So they did Yes It Is. Uh, it has that distinctive tone pedal guitar, you know, the wah, 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 that's, uh, uh, which is also on I Need You. So it was used on both tracks that they recorded that day. You don't realize how much I need you Love you all the time I never Volume pedal, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, and just for people that don't play the guitar, I mean, literally, it's a pedal that you push down like you're hitting the accelerator in a car, only you go up and down according to how much volume or how much level you want to come out of the amplifier. But it's so, of course, that wah, wah. It's not a wah, wah sound, but it's, but it's sort of akin to that. Uh, so one of two Harrison tracks on the album, the other is You Like Me Too Much, uh, and he had had no songwriting credits on the previous record, Beatles for Sale, and only one on Hard Day's Night. So he's very, very much in the, the shadow, of course, of Lennon and McCartney. So the first George Harrison song, this is my first chance to ask you, you got to interview George Harrison in 1988. How did it come about? The, the, tell me about it. I, I mean, something I will never have the chance to do for obvious reasons. What was it like? Well, it, it was phenomenal. I mean, I was very nervous going into that. Uh, we had a false start where it seemed like it was going to happen a few weeks earlier. So I had a chance to totally prep myself for the interview. And then, it, then it, it washed out for some reason. But he had the album Cloud Nine out. And I guess the label were saying, you know what? We could make this a big record. It's a great album but you need to go out there and do some interviews. And so he did a, a selective number of interviews and to my great good fortune, one of them was, was with me on much music. Um, when you think about the idea, but I just, I remember when, when he entered the room somebody said, yeah, when a, when a beetle came into the studio, it was like, it became a cathedral. <laughs> was, uh, he was as unassuming as you would hope and genteel and friendly to people. 
at the same time, he does not suffer fools gladly. He's one, he's one of the more direct people you'll speak to. And if you've ever seen that mortal clip from the interview where he's talking about Paul McCartney. Yes. <laughs> that's the one everybody remembers. I think I, I've read something very recently, like before the interview, about McCartney intending to do an album of other people's songs, specifically John Lennon's songs, uh, including... Um, uh, What's the one about his, his son? Oh, Chuck. Beautiful Boy. Beautiful Boy, thank you. Yeah, that was one of the ones that was mentioned. And George looked at me and went, Paul? <laughs> yeah. So, what? Is there any good ones of his own? I like, yes. Well, now we've got that on tape. <laughs> it's just, and he went, well, you know, it's true, isn't it? And it was just, he was just so out of hand. And it, and it was such a slit that you think, Boy, they haven't given up the ghost on, on you know, going after one another all those years later. Oh, I, I, watch, I watched the interview uh, yesterday, uh, preparing to, to talk to you today, and you could see how y- y- there was a moment where you didn't quite, did I just hear what I thought I heard? And what <laughs> should I, how should I react? Uh, was, it, was it intimidating to interview him? Uh, in the sense that, it was the interview that I'd been preparing for since I was 14. <laughs> you know, uh, I could not be prepared enough. I mean, it was just um, because it was such an emotional connection in my life, as you and I have talked about today. Uh, that said, I thought I was the right person for the job. You know, you could call that egotistical if you like, but you know, you have to know what you're good at. And I thought, no, I, I can handle this one. I know what to do. I know what to ask. I know how to treat this, this man and you know, give him all the respect he deserves, but at the same time, don't back off. And I'm going to ask him things like, you know, why they had agreed to like, use the song something in a commercial, which was, you know, in those days, a kind of a pointed question to be asking George Harrison. Um, but he answered everything very even-handedly uh, without, without reservation or, you know, pause. So... And, and did he, uh, Christopher, did he just, like, when he came into the studio, were there minders all over the place, or did he just come in? And then when he finished, it was like, yep, see you, out of here. Uh, did you have, did you get a chance to chat with him at all? Well, when he came in, he had uh, well, certainly one person from Warner Music was with him, but we hadn't been able to announce the interview. That was, that was one of the conditions of getting this interview was that we were not allowed to mention it on air. We weren't allowed to hype it in any way. We weren't even allowed to say somebody really special. Someone. We couldn't do any of that. It was just all that. It was like camera, lights came up. There was George Harrison. That was how we had to do this in order to get the gig. So, I mean, I did talk to him uh, when we rolled a video. And then at the end, <laughs> we got up. And uh, we were standing side by side, and he's looking around the studio. I think it was like you know, the first time he'd really taken it in. And you remember what the madness of much music was like in those days. And he looked at me, and he went, this is a very casual program. Yeah. <laughs> it was just, again, that sort of classic George Harrison understatement, you know, because all hell was breaking loose in the room as usual, you know? Oh, uh, I mean, it must have been, if there could have been a camera sort of back from where you two were sitting, I, I would imagine there must have been like just a, a circle of people standing around listening, watching. 
Um, yes. And, and it's funny. I, I think there was a camera that was shooting the shooters. And I mean, I remember looking out and it was probably the crowd, most crowded the room had ever been. It wasn't a big space. And um, I mean, I think that there was a very respectful distance kept. I mean, first of all, the cameras had to be able to move, maneuver around and do their work. And, you know, there's like a floor director and some other people. So there's a certain amount of space around the, the interview portion of the, I hesitate to call it a set because I was the farthest thing from what it was, but you know what I mean? And, um, but outside that circle, that rim, then definitely people were there and hanging on his every word, as was I. <laughs> Uh, any thoughts on I Need You? Stand out as a, a, a great Harrison track, just a, a work-a-day track? I like it. I like it. I don't love it. I like it. Um, I mean, it's interesting. Uh, in his book, I Mean Mind, did you ever read the book? Yes. Yeah. It, it's. I found that was one of the most revealing books about the era that I read anywhere. I mean, first of all, he's the only one that wrote an autobiography. And... Uh, and I think he was in some ways the first one to become really disenchanted with what the Beatles represented and, and how they devoured their lives. Um, there's some, there's some hair-raising stories he tells about like, fan reaction and things that they had to deal with on the road. And he describes life in the Beatles as a prison. And I, I mean, I read the book before I interviewed him and, uh, that sort of chilled me. I mean, uh, you know, you think it wasn't that long before that John Lennon died, and you know those, and here he was coming in live to a television studio. Uh, yeah, he always. Uh, I the one that jumps out for me is in the Beatles anthology, and he says something. I'm paraphrasing, but he says something along the lines of, "Well, the all the kids gave us their money." but we gave them our nervous system, meaning it was, it was just, uh, he, he did. He always, had a, always seemed to have a, a wary relationship with fame, which is interesting yeah, for I a guy. I think that's a good way to look at it. I mean, but they didn't bargain on that. They thought they, they, thought they were going to get like a year or two at best. Right? We, you know, that's the myth, but it's also the truth. Mm-hmm. They, they, they didn't think this thing was going to last. Good God, it was rock and roll, you know? Well, it wasn't, rock and roll wasn't built to last. It was burnt to, built to burn out or fade away, one or the other, right? <laughs> um, but, I mean, the reason I mentioned I Be Mine was because those were the only two songs of his that he did not mention in his book were the ones in Help. <laughs> and I wondered, is that a judgment on the songs on his part? Interesting. I mean, uh, yeah, I, I hadn't picked up on that when I read the book, but that that uh, interesting feature about the song, too, from a songwriter's point of view, um, he uses what they call an imperfect cadence, so imperfectly resolving on a tonic A chord in the climax of the bridge. So on, I just can't go like on this. anymore. I just can't uh, go on and anymore. so a lot of... He, he, he sort of was developing that that aspect of his songwriting that and maybe took it the next step uh, in the next album, uh, If I Needed Someone. This is sort of son of If I Needed Someone. You know, I think um, he was influenced musically more by John Lennon. Um, because, you know, John Lennon loved those um, droning harmonies. And so I think that that 
I don't want to call it discordant, but when there were rubs that happened musically and then resolved, uh, and with the drone harmonies where they'll keep like one note that runs throughout a series of chord changes. Like in uh, I'm Only Sleeping is another great example of that kind of approach. Yep. I love those songs. I love that kind of sound. Um, and I think George absorbed a certain amount of that from, from John. But then, of course, he branched out and, you know, uh, immersed himself in Indian music as well, which is, boy, you want to hear drones? <laughs> there, there they are. <laughs> So cut five, we get to side one and another girl. Uh, They made Ticket to Ride during the day. It was a productive day. They did Ticket to Ride during the day. And then in the evening, they came back and did another girl uh, like Ticket to Ride. Very tight three-part harmonies. Cold vocal to start. Oh, I have got another girl. Another girl making me say that I've got I love the, the vocals on this and the, the yes. harmony, but the, you have help another girl and you're going to lose that girl all cold vocal right in. Yeah, I forgotten about that fact. That's that's interesting. Um, I mean, this one, I, I lump it with the night before, as, you know, two, like they're wonderful McCartney songs, but they are clearly McCartney songs. And I think, now I may be wrong about this, Paul, and you, you can please correct me. Was this the first album where they really started to write on their own and they would bring the song to the other writer and maybe some changes would be made or occasionally they would glue sections of songs together like, we can work it out. But um, for the most part, I mean, you figure Hide Your Love Away, I don't think McCartney did anything on that song or, or even help. I, I, I'll bet he contributed to the background vocal parts and they are brilliant. Um, and similarly, I don't hear Lennon's influence on The Night Before or Another Girl. No, and I think it started more so with this album where they were still doing a little bit of the you know across from one another with guitars meeting up at john's place in weybridge out in surrey for a specific writing session but there was a little bit more of i've got this and bring it in uh and of course the the classic example of that coming up later in the album yesterday by paul mccartney which was a completely paul mccartney solo project so yes it started here uh continued on rubber soul and then just continued through there and you know the ultimate of course by the time they got to the white album they were all they were essentially a backing band for one another uh is is, <laughs> is what it has largely turned into but the the thing i love about this tying it back to the movie this sort of video for this one this was when they're standing on the coral roof, a uh, coral reef, and they're miming the song. And McCartney's oh, yeah. he's playing the girl. He's playing the girl, <laughs> and, and 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 you can see they left it in the movie. I love it when he's he has his. Uh, I'll set this for you for those of you listening. Her her arm is out, and he's holding her arm as though it's the neck of the guitar, and he's <laughs> strumming his hand over the front of her breasts and i think he just touches a side of a breast at one point and you see him sort of go whoop and, and looks up in the air like oh whoops sorry about that uh it's, right, it's, really, i have to go back and look at that section again oh it is <laughs> such a fun scene i miss that part but i certainly know the scene um 
Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, they didn't, you know, copyright silliness, but boy, they sure did it well. Huh? Oh, and it, it's that is to your point earlier. It, it's just such a fun film. And that's that's one of my favorite scenes. <laughs> they were famously and they all admit uh, have subsequently as the years have gone by. Uh, and you can see it when you watch the movie. They are stoned out of their brains for some of those scenes. Uh, just they were having a good time. Yes, it was. I had not discovered marijuana at that point, but <laughs> it was pretty great. The, the, the fun that was to await you. Yeah, there you go. Exactly. <laughs> so we get to cut six, side one, and you're going to lose that girl. You're going to lose that girl. Yes, yes, you're going to lose that girl. You're going to lose. Yes, yes, you're going to lose that girl. If you don't take her out tonight, she's going to change her she's mind. For me in this song is the vocal performance by John Lennon. And to your point, Christopher, it, it really, this album really does showcase Lennon. And especially when he steps up to that falsetto, uh, goes up an octave or whatever it is. Uh, I, I just, I just think it's a great, a great, uh, a great vocal performance. He, well, and McCartney too. I mean, they had the ability to just not leave anything on the table when it came to, a vocal performance. And part of that may be just the expediency with which they had to make records. I mean, you know, they, as we all know, they made Beatlemania in what, 14 hours, I think, if, if that, I mean, which is just unthinkable, um, including at the, they saved um, Twist and Shout till the end of the day because Lennon knew that it was just going to rip his vocal cords out and he was only going to get one pass at it. But what a pass it was. And, uh, or you listen to McCartney singing, I'm down. I mean, it's like I get a sore throat just listening to that, you know? Um, and I, yeah, I just, I love how much they pour into their performances. It just makes, it makes the record unforgettable. Well, I mean, here's a great one with I'm down. You know, throat, throat shredding, great, strong vocal performance. Took a break. The next song he recorded, Yesterday. Really? Yeah, right after. Same session. Wow. After. After. That's insane. I know. That that a producer would let a guy shred his throat like that, knowing that he was going to record a ballad in, you know, the next song they were going to work on. That is a little surprising. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. George's been around or we can ask him, but yeah. Wow. (laughs) Um, the, uh, the songs, you're, you're going to lose that girl. Very, uh, the key change, very similar to, and when I tell you, you'll wreck another girl. It's a very similar sort of key change. And then, uh, and it was a real visit to our point a moment ago. This was a song that they wrote together, uh, out at Lennon's house in Weybridge. And it's, it's a real, you know, Lennon's got the great singing and that, and that's great. The call and response with the McCartney and Harrison and the tight harmonies. It really is a sort of a, 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 a latter day visit to the Beatles, great musical home turf, if you will. It, yeah. It, and you know, it's, I'm thinking about this. It does sound more like a collaboration. 
when I inter- I interviewed Paul McCartney too, as you know. Oh, I've got that. I've got that written down. You bet. Well, it just reminded me because he. Um, I was asking him about songwriting. <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about an opportunist, right? Well, there was nobody there to monitor me because it was in London, so I could ask whatever the hell I wanted to, and I did. Uh, and he was talking, sort of generally speaking, about where he got his song ideas from. And he said, you know, really, it's sort of like if Ringo says something like, oh, that was a hard day's night, you know, that kind of thing. He said, he said, oh, or for, for example, I was driving out to John's place in, uh, I think it was Weybridge. Yeah. He said, he calls it a very golfy area. And uh, he said, uh, yeah, I had my, my usual driver, Alf. And uh, I said, oh, Alf, how you doing? How's tricks these days? And, oh, you know, Cole, working eight days a week. And with that, he goes, you know, Martin, Martin like scribbling down there. just like, and he gets to John's place. And of course, I had a great idea for a song, you know? So, yeah, that's I guess that's how it's done, huh? <laughs> hey, well, hey, well, let's. So you interviewed McCartney. Uh, now, from what I could see, Christopher, you would you would know because uh, you actually lived it. Uh, that was what what year was that? Eighty nine. Yes, I want to say eighty nine. So you flew. I just watched the interview, and it looks as though you're sitting somewhere, uh, and they're doing. Uh, it looks like some kind of a prep for a concert in the background, and McCartney's sitting there. That was over in London. Yeah, it was. Uh, he was promoting the uh, Flowers in the Dirt tour, which was, the, as you know, the first tour he'd done, I think, since Wings Over America in seventy seven. So he'd been off the road. A guy that likes to perform for a very, very long time. And I think they were doing interviews. I mean, in those days, Beatles didn't deign to do interviews usually, but I think he wanted to make sure he left no stone unturned in terms of you know, being able to make this a successful concert run. And of course it was. But the interview took place in a giant um, BBC studio. It's called the Elstree Studios in London. And it's like, it's the size of an airplane hanger. It's huge. So what they were doing was they were setting up lighting and sound cues and so on. And we got to watch a full production rehearsal of the entire show from beginning to end with the lighting, with all the stage effects, you know, with him fool on the hill spinning around and around and around. I mean, everything right down to the jokes between the songs. And it was three people in the audience. It was me, it was my cameraman, uh, and Nick Jennings, the journalist uh, who writes for McLean's, or who, who used to write for McLean's. He, wrote, he recently wrote about a biography, an autobiography of Gordon Lightfoot. He's a wonderful writer. Anyway, the three of us sat there on a couch that they had ready for us in the middle of the audience, what would have been an audience, and watched an entire show for two hours. I mean, it was breathtaking. And then I got to interview him, so... Yeah, it was crazy. And, and again, what was it? What was it like to to sit down with the man? Was it very business night like? Like, okay, you have ten minutes, or was it very casual? What was? What's your lasting impression of that encounter? It was, in, in some ways, you know, Paul. It was both. He um, <clears throat> he is very much in control of things. He's very jovial and hail fellow well met. <clears throat> Just as a way of an example. When we got there, uh, we were ushered into the studio and he immediately came up with his manager 
And the manager doesn't get in his way or anything. He comes right up and first thing he does. And I was wearing a jacket that had odd-sized lapels. I don't know why. It was just some stylish statement of mine. And the first thing he did, he walked right up to me and grabs the lapels of my jacket and goes, oh, we're going to have to fix this and starts, you know, messing around with the jacket. And he's got his hands on me. And what he does is he just immediately deflates all of the sort of, oh, my God, I'm interviewing Paul McCartney. I'm going to die kind of thing, you know, that, that people might have a chance to feel, you know, in that circumstance. Um, and he just, I mean, through the interview, he was doing all the funny voices and the gags and just, he was the full on master showman from the moment, the second that we met him until the interview was over. And it was interesting to watch him at work because, you know, while we were I think it's maybe setting up the camera and lights and so on. We saw him like the um, people from Visa came in because they were sponsoring the tour. And you see them coming over and he comes to them and he's like patting them on the back. And you can see this from a distance. You can't hear the conversation. But you see that he's doing the whole, you know, yeah, 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 pole, you know, the funny pole bit the whole time with them. And then 10 minutes later, they're gone. And then boom. Next in comes the T-shirt designers. And he's got his hands all over that. And he's like making comments. And, and you can tell this from a distance, you know. He was engaged, involved in every single aspect. He was a micromanager extraordinaire. And, you know, I think that in some ways that's what he did when he was in the Beatles. But it was a fabulous experience. I mean, he was very gracious and generous with his time and funny as hell. And he told me some stories that I will never forget about writing Let It Be and writing Eleanor Rigby and, you know, those those kinds of stories you don't forget. Those kinds of interviews, if, if you can have one of those in a career, yeah. you're you're blessed and you've been able to interview two of the Beatles. And so I've, I watched your interview with Kate Bush. I think fantastic, an artist who doesn't give many interviews. I don't think she's been back since. <laughs> So we'll close out side one and cut seven, uh, the last uh, track on that side. And one of my favorites, Ticket to Ride. Uh, for me, it was the first song they started to work on in, in sessions for the album. And just an extraordinary sound for its time. That chiming, clean guitar sound from McCartney. Big, big tom-toms. I mean, that, that was a heavy-sounding record for 1965, was it not? Yeah, and I know that that's how John Lennon looked upon it. He thought it was a heavy-sounding record, as you, as you aptly put it. Um, and I think, it's like when I was talking to McCartney, he, was, he, he made reference to... Uh, listening to The Who and saying, I, if they can do that, I can do them one better. And then he went away and wrote uh, Helter Skelter. So, you know, they weren't above writing something that was really intense. And this is another example of it, especially for the time. McCartney says, uh, we wrote the melody together. You can hear it in the record. John's taking the melody and I'm singing harmony with it. We'd often work those out when we wrote them. Uh, and then he said it, it was pretty much a work job that turned out quite well. Uh, and what, what McCartney liked about it, the interesting thing, I'm quoting McCartney here, paraphrasing, uh, the crazy ending. Instead of ending like the previous verse, we changed the tempo and we picked up one of the lines, my baby don't care, but completely altered the melody. We almost invented the idea of a new bit of a song on the fade out. It was something special. 
Yeah, something specially written for the fade-out, which was very effective, but it was quite cheeky when we did the fast ending, quite radical at the time. <laughs> it's funny. I was working on a song recently, and I was determined I was going to put a coda in it, and it was <laughs> totally inspired by, you know, the, the, the things the Beatles did. I, and I love that, that aspect of that song. Yeah. Uh, it has that droning sound, mm-hmm. that, which you talked about earlier, and uh, it was the first Beatles recording to break the three-minute barrier. Wow. Interminable. This one ever. <laughs> yeah, they, they, they kept them tight. Uh, and, and for me, probably my favorite sequence in the movie. It, 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 I mean, it is a, you could just lift that right out of the film, and you have a perfect music video. You know, the Beatles frolicking in the Alps. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> love that part so that's side one uh we will uh flip it over to side two and the first track act naturally (laughs) uh anything to say about act naturally buckles and the buckaroos yeah thing is that it it has a lot of charm i mean ringo whatever charm he has and it's considerable he brings it all to the table in that particular song i think it's a perfect ringo thing and it it is a a cover of a buck owens and the buckaroos who had a number one song with it on the billboard country singles chart in 1963 um and they needed a song for Ringo. They had tried out, I don't know if you, it showed up on the Anthology 2 album, uh, If You've Got Trouble, um, which just did not work <laughs> at all. So they needed a song for Ringo, and, and this is this is the one they, they came up See, with. See, I would still rather hear this than Octopus's Garden. Call me a curmudgeon, if you will. You know? <laughs> <laughs> No, I'm, I'm, if, if those are the two, I'm, I'm with you firmly uh, or, on Act Naturally. Uh, don't pass me by, even. Uh, <clears throat> you know, she was in a car crash and she lost her hair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Lennon McCartney lyrics, they were not. <laughs> No, on, the, on that one. And he actually did perform this song. He played it on the Ed Sullivan Show on August 14th, 65, uh, later broadcast in September. And it was also performed at the Beatles Shea Stadium concert on August 15th, 65. So uh, he did play it live. And uh, it was the last cover that they recorded as a band until the Get Back, Let It Be sessions in So second track on side two, it's only love, and Lennon and McCartney wrote it together in Weybridge at his house, and uh, John Lennon, here's what he thought of it, he told David Sheff in the 1980 Playboy interview, I always thought it was a lousy song, the lyrics were abysmal, I always hated that song. (laughs) So... So John is down for a no on uh, It's Only Love. I Again, I remember hearing it, you know, when I was a kid and hearing hearing it on uh, Rubber Soul, of course. And uh, I loved it. And again, it has that droney Lennon thing in it, you know. 
the way the harmonies are structured. And that's fantastic. So, um, yeah, I mean, you, you know, in retrospect, in hindsight, he trashed a lot of songs that I have a great deal of affection for. I don't think he thought much of uh, Dr. Robert or Andrew Bird can sing. And I love those songs. Love those songs. Uh, so we get the final word. <laughs> His working title for it when he he before he'd come up with "It's Only Love" was "That's a Nice Hat." <laughs> <laughs> I'm just thinking, that's a nice hat. It's only love, boy. It must be a tough call. That's uh, that's a nice hat, and that is all. It's something like that, maybe. I don't know. Uh, in his 1997 biography, Paul McCartney, uh, many years from now, uh, the one he did with. Um, Miles, Barry Miles, he says, sometimes we didn't fight it if the lyric came out rather bland and some of those filler songs like It's Only Love. If the lyric was really bad, we'd edit it, but we weren't that fussy about it because it's only a rock and roll song. I mean, it's not literature. Well, I think, you know, he, he, he clearly would have become more scrutinizing over time. I mean, you, you tell me that he didn't take his time with Penny Lane, you know, um, but... I, I suspect that he's being honest. When you, I mean, when you look at the covers that are on this record, I, I mean, they love Dizzy Miss Lizzie. Maybe it was a fun song to play in Hamburg. I don't know. But it's there because they didn't have enough songs. Why didn't they have enough songs? Because they didn't have enough time to write them. Why? Because they were on the road, you know? It's just textbook stuff, right? On the road, making movies. Yeah. yeah. So, but I want to pick up on the uh, This Is Not Literature because you, my friend, as well as being a songwriter, I note that you've written three books of fiction, uh, two of them based on a character, a young girl named Mackenzie. So tell me about that. The inspiration is writing a story for a book, like writing lyrics for a song. Well, um, it's my daughter's middle name. <clears throat> so, uh, and, uh, we went to live in Paris for a couple of years and we were reading books for her. I mean, she was five at the time. And it seemed like in almost all cases, the, um, there was a boy who was the hero of the book. Uh, this was before uh, the golden compass and books like that. Um, so I thought, well, I'll write one. And uh, it was a pretty whimsical enterprise and a huge, huge amount of fun to do because I'd never done it before. I didn't, nobody was expecting it or wanting it or even asking for it for that matter. So I didn't have any scrutiny on the work. Nobody was saying, well, this is how it's done. I didn't have an editor at the time. Eventually I did get one, but um, it was just so much fun to do. And um, you know, it, it was similar but different from writing music, just in the big for the obvious reason, just the compactness of writing a song. It's and you can usually finish in a day if you're really disciplined, right? <laughs> so, uh, although not always, um, but yeah, it, it, it was a, it was a whole lot of fun to do. It, 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 honestly, I just yeah, and I wrote a follow up to it as well. So, <laughs> is writing a book like writing lyrics for a song, or completely different? I mean, I think there's no one way to write a song. It's a pretty free-flowing... And, and McCartney said that in the interview, too. He said, well, there's just... You know, he said, I'll write it whatever way there is. And, you know, 
Lennon could get an idea from a shop window, right? Uh, you know, the lyrics to being for the benefit of Mr. Kite. Or you could get an idea for a song from an overheard conversation. Or it could be a phrase in a book that you just read. I mean, there's so many ways to write a song. Whereas with a book, if you're going to have a narrative structure, then there has to be some kind of grid on which the story is told. And I think there has to be, you know, some kind of payoff. I mean, I guess it's parallel to the, you know, tension release aspect of a pop song in that, you know, the, the book has to have that uh, denouement as well. But I don't, I don't want to get too analytical about it because I, I just did it for fun. Though you've gone away this morning, you'll be back again tonight. On to the third track, side two, You Like Me Too Much, second Harrison track on the album, the third one to be recorded by the Beatles. They did it on the same day as the night before, and Lennon playing that same uh, pianette that I mentioned earlier that features in the night before. Um, interesting thing about this one, the piano introduction was later out and out lifted by Bob Dylan for his song Temporary Like Achilles on 1966 Blonde on Blonde. Did George Harrison or did George Martin play it? That piano introduction is played by Paul McCartney and George Martin playing two different piano parts on separate ends of the same Steinway grand piano. <laughs> wow, I'm glad I asked. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, the Steinway's only on the song's intro and overdubbed separately, as were McCartney's bass and Harrison's vocal overdubs. But ah. uh, it's a, I mean, uh, they put a lot of work into this Harrison song, which I, I don't think they always did. I don't think George Harrison would say that his songwriting was at the level that McCartney and Lennon were at. Um, I mean, he, just even those couple of years of difference in age would have factored in, I think, as much as anything. Um, mm -hmm. But also, he just hadn't matured as a songwriter the way they had. And I think that their maturity came not only from their talent, but also from their competition. They pushed and drove each other to write better songs. I mean, that's well-known and well-documented. And they said the same themselves. Um, whereas I think George, you know, he kind of had to you know, muddle along by himself and figure out the process. And, but once he did, I mean, when you listen to the, you know, the George Harrison songs from the last few Beatles albums, I mean, say from even Revolver, I mean, Taxman, that's a great tune. If they didn't spend enough time on that, I don't know, it sounds pretty damn good to me. Like, well, I don't know what else you would have done on that one. Or the, I mean, the masterpieces of, you know, twin masterpieces of something and uh, here comes the sun, you know? I mean, mm -hmm. what else would you do with those songs? They're as great as they're ever going to get, right? I heard a Cheryl Crow version of Here Comes the Sun, and she literally copied it note for note. Hey, hey Christopher, it, it, I talked about the, the piano introduction and Dylan borrowing that uh, for temporary like Achilles on, on Blonde on Blonde. Is it impossible, as a songwriter as you are, um, to not borrow from other musicians. And I listened to a couple of tracks from your Spark of Desire album. And and I can hear and maybe I'm I'm uh, fishing off the wrong pier here but um uh, in the song Once in a Long Time, uh, I hear a real Burt Bacharach Hal David influence on that. You know, was that something that would have influenced? So you just pick stuff up. Is it impossible not to if you were a writer like that? Well, that's the thing. If you're a songwriter, 
Um, it's like if you want to be a writer of any kind, you have to read. So you you can't help it because things are sticky and you don't necessarily even know how you process things that you hear. I've never thought of that as a, you know, backrack David, but that's a fantastic compliment because, you know, they are master writers. I mean, Burt Bacharach's musical stuff, I mean, it's just unthinkably great. It's, and there, I, I was reading where he was working with Elvis Costello and uh, Costello said that he, accidentally played something that they were working on and he literally changed one note in the middle of the chord and back right from across the room said, Oh, don't forget the G sharp. You know, it was like, you know, <laughs> everything mattered to Bert Backrack was the point. And, uh, I saw Hal David once at a party. This is the Hollywood story for you. And, uh, he got up and he did a version of Alfie and he sort of, he, he didn't really sing. He sort of spoke it, but, kind of saying I wept it just it just bloody well killed me so anytime you want to compare anything I've done to those cats please feel free <laughs> well, well, you, well you know the song well as you did record it uh spark of desire 1978 album but once in a long time I remember it being a hit as a kid uh and yeah go, go back and give it a listen I I do I hear a little bit of if you haven't listened to it in a few years there's a little bit of Bacharach David there. Love will linger in a moment of breathless night. Summer moon is a diamond in the sky. Feel a perfect feeling. Feel yourself believing. Summer moon forever fills the sky. Is that out anywhere or not? No, the wires never digitized it, so we're going to have to, you know, storm the building of the cable. I gotta get that out there. Get that out there. It's a it's a classic of its era. Uh, there were a few hits off that album. Uh, there's a song called "Maybe Your Heart" that also did well at radio. So, yeah. Long, long time ago. <laughs> it was. It was. Fourth track, side two. Tell me what you see. Tell me what you see. It is no surprise now. What you see is me. Big and black, the clouds may be. Uh, recorded the same evening session where they'd worked on If You Got Trouble, that the ill-fated Ringo Starr attempt. Um, and uh, McCartney says that he reckons he wrote about 60% of it, Lennon about 40%. Uh, just probably something that had to get done, sounds like. I guess. I mean, again, for, there's a sort of theme running through our conversation, but there's so much of how we look at these things and how we hear them and how we remember them is filtered through the feelings we had at the time we first heard them and experienced them. You know, whether it was, whether it was, you know, as you say, thinking about Ticket to Ride through the filter of, you know, the, the incredible scene in the movie. <clears throat> and I just, you know, I just remember playing those records. And although I remember when I got the help album and it had all those instrumentals, I remember thinking, what a drag. This is terrible. <laughs> because they didn't just like put them all at the end or anything where you could just not listen to them every time. 
they just wove them through the album. I mean, come on. It was such I, it was such a ripoff back in yeah. those. You know the the British the British fans got two sides one side one side of songs in the movie the other side of new songs that weren't including in the movie. a little and throwaway it, called yesterday. Well, this is what we're coming to. I mean, tra- track five and six, we can almost do these together because uh, this just blows me away. That you have, I've just seen a face fantastic track and yesterday what hasn't been said about it and they're buried on side two of help as the 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 second last and third from last tracks on side two like just what a wealth of material but again you know it's like we were talking about earlier the um the songs that came out as singles never even made it onto albums i mean lady madonna you know um, well, of course, the classic, you know, Penny Lane and, and Strawberry Fields. But the, the, Day Tripper, I, I Feel yeah, Fine. All that stuff. Paperback Writer and Rain. I mean, God. They just, you know, tossed them all as a single, so we won't include it on the album. It's like, what? <laughs> it's, it's, it's crazy. I just seen a face. I did a performance of it once with three fr- friends, um, one of whom was Atlanta Miles. We did a country version of it as a quartet, just for, for, for fun. I interviewed Jim Cuddy about Rub- Jim Cuddy and Colin Cripps about Rubber Soul, and Jim Cuddy is adamant about that. He said, I've just seen a face, announces something, and it is a perfect setup for the second song, Norwegian Wood. He says, Drive My Car is a good song, but it, it's, it's a novelty song. It, you know song. what, he's right, it is a novelty song, yeah. I have, a, I have a story to tell you, and I'm, I keep talking about my daughter, but um, when she was three and we'd fallen in love with help and all of that, I started working my way through all the, uh, the CDs with her in the car. And uh, we were listening to um, Drive My Car one day. And she said, oh, that's Paul singing, isn't it, Daddy? I'm like, yeah, <laughs> she's three, right? And she says, oh, except that John sings one little part. I said, no, honey, it's it's Paul singing the song. She said, no, no, it's, it's John. I'm pretty sure she's three. And she, so I go, well, where? And it's, it's the part you'd probably know what the answer to this question is. It's the part where it goes, and maybe I love you. And I think it's because of an overlap vocal or something where, you know, he had to sing it because no, you know, Paul was busy singing something else. <laughs> That's when I thought my, my child was a freak. <laughs> <laughs> she's got a great yeah. ear. She's got a great ear. <laughs> Uh, I've just seen a face was the it was the first track they worked on after a month long break in recording and so here's the day for Paul McCartney I talked to you about earlier Christopher so June 14th 1965 in one day one day they come back from a break in, in recording he records in order I've just seen a face I'm down than yesterday. <laughs> I don't even know what to say to that. I I guess he was prepared. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, th- but three, like, completely, particularly I'm down. I mean, three very different, all very good tunes in one day. Yeah. And, and to do yesterday in two takes right after you've done I'm down. I mean, genius. People think yesterday is the most recorded song of all time, but it's not. 
What is? Summertime by George Gershwin. You uh, you out-nerded me on that one. That was, that was very well done. Of Yesterday, um, it was released as a single in the U.S., not in Britain. Uh, the Beatles were, Brian Epstein apparently uh, was adamant that it would not be released as a single uh, because in Britain because it was essentially a Paul McCartney solo record. Yesterday All my troubles seem so far away Now it looks as though they're here to stay Oh, I believe in yesterday Suddenly Here's McCartney talking about it uh, in many years later, in 2004, in an interview that he did with Mojo Magazine. Uh, he was asked on the subject of yesterday, does it surprise you that as many people violently hate the song as love it? And McCartney said, my personal take on it is that it's not a bad little song. Whether it's the most popular or whatever, it's certainly loved by quite a few people. When you get a song like that, whether it's Yesterday or I Will Always Love You, a lot of people will react against it because it's always on the radio or at the top of the chart or always playing in restaurants. Some people get annoyed of having to listen to it. It's a bit of a British thing, too. We Brits are not that big on success, especially when someone else is having it. Where do you come down on yesterday as a songwriter? Huh. That's a funny observation that he made about the Brits. I think we could say the same about Canadians in some ways. What do they call it? The tall poppy syndrome, you know? Don't get too big for your britches now, you know? I think yesterday is a great song. I think it is a truly, truly great song. Um, and actually, he was talking in the conversation I had with McCartney. He brought it up because we were talking about the songs that he chose for the tour and how he chose them and why certain ones had to be included. And he said, you know, the thing about yesterday is that it changes over time. He said, as you have more yesterdays of your own to look back on and uh, uh, it is, it sort of deepens with time is what he's saying. And I, I really understand what he's, what he's saying. And if you can ever write a song that has that degree of durability, never mind the, uh, popularity uh you've really done something uh christopher i just finished watching the interview uh and i had it's it's funny listening to you talk about watching you do the interview <laughs> and then listening to you talk about it because that that's the quote i'd written down you know it, it the song means more to him now than it did when he wrote it because there are more yesterdays well it's a good thing i remember my my interview well because i haven't watched it for a while <laughs> it's it's a, the guy who did the interview knew what he was doing. It's pretty good. You should give it a watch. <laughs> uh, and, and it's also a lovely uh, reminiscence of Paul working with George Martin. Uh, March 9th, 2016, in an interview, um, McCartney says, It's hard to choose favorite memories of my time with George. There are so many, but one comes to mind is the time I brought him the song yesterday to a recording session and the guys in the band suggested I sang it solo and accompany myself on guitar and after I'd done this George said to me Martin I have an idea of putting a string quartet onto the record and I said oh no George we're a rock and roll band I don't think it's a good idea with the gentle bedside manner of a great producer he said to me let's just try it and if it doesn't work we won't use it and we'll go with your solo version I agreed to this went round to his house the next day 
and worked on the arrangement. He took my chords that I showed him, spread the notes out across the piano, putting in the cello with the low octave, first violin and the high octave, and gave him his first lesson in how you voiced strings for a quartet. I just think that's a, a lovely story of two great people working together. Well, how do you argue with perfection? You know, I mean, the hard thing about some of these songs to go back and analyze them is that you know them so well that they become these sacred things. And I suppose that's why when McCartney did his solo shows and, and, you know, after all the years that he had not been touring, he did the songs exactly as we remember them. And I think that that was a gift to the fans because, you know, we love what we know and we have such deep emotional connections to those. And I would say the same for something as simple as a string part. Mm -hmm. I mean, you could take it out and the song would still be a beautiful song, a timeless piece of work, but it wouldn't be the song we know. Christopher, what is it that, you know, you use the word perfection. What is it from a musical standpoint that makes it so perfect for the song? What is it about the, is it, is it that it's sympathetic to the tune? Is it the chords? Is it the instrumentation? Can you, is that, are you able to explain that? No, <laughs> I, I don't, I don't think I can. I, I think it's, um, uh, it's more an emotional reaction. It's, I mean, the totality of how a piece of music makes you feel is, um, happens on a gut level. I mean, you know, people can intellectualize about music all they want, and certainly the Beatles music has been analyzed up the yin-yang, but I mean, really, at the end of the day, we love it because of how it makes us feel. And sure, some of that is pure nostalgia. Some of that is remembering when we first heard the song or, you know, the time, the time of our lives or whatever, the certain lost innocence, whatever you want to say. But... You know, there was just a magical combination of elements that produced certain feelings. And clearly, they resonated with more than just one or two people, because here we are all those years later. And just for those of you who don't know the story, uh, famously, uh, Paul McCartney composed the entire melody in a dream one night in his room at the Wimple Street home of his then-girlfriend Jane Asher. Upon waking, he hurried to a piano and played the tune to avoid forgetting it. And his initial concern was it, it was such a a perfect tune that he thought he must have heard it somewhere and he spent yeah. yeah he spent weeks playing it to other people going is is this anything am i and finally he took ownership of it you know that is something that, that really really rings true because you know when you hit on something really quickly your first one of your first thoughts is often did i steal that is that is that something else that i know and have buried in my subconscious and just pulled out on a, you know, years later. And you do, you play, have you heard this before? You, you play stuff for people because, you know, you don't want to be guilty of plagiarism, obviously. Yeah. But uh, what I love about that story is he's staying at his girlfriend's place. Presumably they're not sleeping in the same room. <laughs> and so the Asher family provides a piano for, for Paul in his bedroom. Come on. <laughs> so, I am not going to put you in the uncomfortable position of saying that 
Black Velvet was your yesterday. But in <laughs> the world of songwriting, a huge hit, December of 89, uh, Alana Miles won a Grammy for her vocal performance in 1991. Fantastic song, still played. It's been played millions and millions of times. Uh, I found, just with a quick search, at least 16 other cover versions of the song. So I would be completely remiss if I did not ask you how you wrote your biggest hit song. Did did you follow to bed and have the tune in your head? Was it a laborious, painstaking thing? How did it happen? Well, the original lyric was scrambled eggs, yes. <laughs> Um, well, it, it's a long story, but I will try to compress it for you. I was given an assignment when I was working at Much Music to go on a Greyhound bus with a cameraman and 40 Elvis fanatics to Memphis, Tennessee for the 10th anniversary of Elvis's death. So I had lots of time on my hands while I was on the Greyhound bus. And I like to do research for shows that I was producing. So um, I was reading a book about Elvis and his mom. And there was a whole story about, you know, it's like with the baby on her shoulder, there's that in all lyrics. And how the, you know, the author of the book went to see the church in Tupelo where Elvis used to go as a kid and how the preacher was exhorting the congregation and it reminded the writer of Elvis's stage moves, which is why I wrote the line, a new religion that'll bring you to your knees. So, you know, there's, all, there's, there's always like little bits and pieces that get woven together in a song. As for the music, it was just one of those feels that, you know, you love as a guitar player. You sit and play until the people downstairs want to kill you, you know? <laughs> yeah, you, know, you sit and play, you know, do, 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 And, you know, you just do that for like a month and then something falls into place. So it was a music feel that I love. It's called a shuffle feel. It's one of the oldest, most timeless musical feels there is. And then, um, and then the lyrics from my notebook from the Elvis trip kind of found their way into that song in, in a melody. The, uh, the verse is really simple. It's one chord. The whole verse is one chord. Um, it branches out in the chorus. And when I met Robert Plant, he said, Oh, Christopher, Blackfell, this is a bloody blues song with a chorus. You know? <laughs> I'm like, oh, well, yeah, I guess, <laughs> I guess you're right. I'm thinking, well, he's written some blues songs with choruses, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and her vocal performance on that, were you there when she taped it? Oh, yeah, I was there for everything. And did you know you had a winner? Well, she took to the song. Well, what happened was we were working on songs for her album, and her producer, Dave, said, man, it would be great if we had a shuffle feel. And I said, well, look at this thing I've been working on. It's not finished yet, but I had most of it. I had the verse and I had the chorus and the lyrics. And she just went, I love that. I love that. I have to, I have to do that. I have to record that. She was a very passionate person to work with. I mean, she was all in on something that was just, that was it. It was done. And she started singing it and she just wailed on it. I mean, it was very big and soulful and intense. I thought, wow, this is going to be good. So Dave said, do you have a bridge for the song? I said, no. And he said, do you mind if I try to write one? I said, no, not at all. So he went home and wrote the bridge, which is the part that goes every word of every song. I mean, I wrote the lyric for it, but he wrote the, you know, the, the melody. 
So, um, yeah, she recorded it on the hottest day of the summer, as the story goes, and it's true, in a little basement studio. And it was so hot, she was wearing a bathing suit. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, I'll just... <laughs> <laughs> just leave it at that, yeah, people. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Alana Miles recording on a hot day in a bathing suit. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Teenage dream, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, what a tune. And uh, I mean, you know, testament to, uh, again, you know, it's not yesterday, but I mean, testament to the fact we're talking about it all these years later. It's been covered a bunch of times and it's played, as you know, all over the world. I mean, what a, that's a day's work, my well, friend. Well, I am very grateful for the day that I woke up with that idea in my head. <laughs> <laughs> So we'll we'll shuffle on to the last track on side two of the Help album. And this is, um, you know, speaking of old songs, this one's a little older than the song you wrote, but it was Dizzy Miss Lizzie, and it was the result of another workmanlike day in the Beatles' life. day at uh, Cliveden House shooting scenes for help and then they headed to Abbey Road after a day of shooting for an eight o'clock session because Capital in the USA wanted a couple of more tunes to pad out a couple of more North American albums. They didn't have anything new so they ran off a couple of old Larry Williams classics from their old stage act Dizzy Miss Lizzie and Bad Boy. Just played them pretty much live in the studio as you hear them. Uh, and I just, that that Dizzy Miss Lizzie, that's a hell of a performance. It's a great performance. Yeah, I was I was just listening to it. And, uh, well, it, you know, it's in the school of Twist and Shout and those other songs where Lennon just, you know, lets it rip. And, and the same with, um, what was the other one you mentioned? Uh, the other uh, Larry Bad Boy. Lewis. Bad Boy. Bad little kid moving. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they both ended up on the Beatles' six album in the USA, so they padded that out. Uh, but yeah, I love Bad Boy as well. I mean, just two great performances, and, and it's it's cool when I was researching this, uh, Christopher, reading that they just basically went in, it was their old stage act from the Hamburg days, and just ripped through two tunes, just live. No, no well, overdubs. You know, it's amazing. When, when I think about the songs that were covers, like it didn't... When I was a kid, I didn't separate out initially because I was a kid, you know, which songs they wrote, which they didn't. They were just all of a piece. So when I would hear songs like Anna and Chains and You Really Got a Hold on Me and Please Mr. Postman, I mean, they were Beatles songs as far as I was concerned. And um, yeah, I mean, they, they chose songs that they clearly loved and had performed so many hundreds or thousands of times. So they were great, great, great additions to the album. So just kind of a fun song and a little like the work you did in a very special little fun band called Ming T (laughs) (laughs) with your buddy Mike Myers, uh, Susanna Hoffs from the Bangles, Matthew Street. How did how did because you played a character in the film in the band? How did that all come about? Well, Mike's an old friend of mine. We were in the Second City Touring Company together, and we've stayed friends over the years. And when he was doing um, 
the Austin Powers movie, he uh, wanted to form a band. So he called me and he got Matthew Sweet and Matthew's drummer, uh, Stuart Johnson and Susanna. And um, Susanna's husband, Jay, was, uh, was directing the film. So it all kind of fit together. And um, yeah, but, but Mike, I mean, he's very musical. So, you know, he had the song BBC. He gave us all credits on the album, but, you know, realistically, Mike wrote the song. And I got a chance to perform it recently, by the way, with Mike at um, the Largo Theater in Los Angeles. This is bizarre, but he called me and said, hey, do you want to go see the Neil Finn show at Largo? I was like, yeah, that'd be great. He says, oh, okay. Well, I just heard from Neil. I'm like, yeah. He said, but he wants me to perform a song. I said, well, that's great. You should definitely perform a song. He said, well, I'm not doing it unless you do. I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, been a long time since I was on stage. And uh, he said, yeah, I was thinking of doing BBC. And I went, well, that's a great idea. He's like, well, you're doing it with me. I'm like, oh, okay. And he was nervous because, you know, he doesn't play to be able to lead the band. So he needed me to kind of, you know, show the music. I mean, it's a three-chord special. It wasn't a lot to learn, but we didn't have very long to prepare for it. Let me put it that way. Um, but it was, now that was a lot of fun. Was, so just a couple other things, uh, and then I'll... I'll, I'll want to get your last thoughts but uh, for the cover art uh, it was shot by robert freeman famous photographer uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. he also did he shot that famous cover for with the beatles where they're sort of in the half light uh, with, yeah. a, with a with a, a curtain pull behind them beatles for sale he shot that cover and his other famous one was the rubber soul cover uh, with the sort of, uh, you know, looking up elongated faces. Uh, he shot those. He shot them at Twickenham Studios uh, in the summer. Uh, they're not shot in the Alps, as it looks like in the cover. They just took the, the, the photos of the Beatles that he took and stuck them on there. Uh, the semaphore... They originally wanted them to spell out help in semaphore, but right. it didn't look good, Robert Freeman said. And having a photographer's eye, he just did it all positioning of what looked best for the arms and what looked best in the composition for the photo. So it actually it doesn't spell out help. On the UK version, it spells out N-U-J-V. And on the, on the US version, they, they switch the order of the Beatles around and it spends N-V-U-J. Uh, so it, this is not even slightly obscure, Paul. I have to tell you, <laughs> not even slightly. Okay. Hey, my my, I remember my my dad gave me a book of um, Beatles photographs by Robert Freeman. He shot the you, you remember that infamous shot of them uh, in the middle of a pillow fight in the New York hotel room. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That was one. Great, great photographer, uh, and you know some fantastic. The, the story behind the rubber sole, where it is. I guess the way he would do it is he would come in and he had a card, a white card cut out in the shape of a, an old vinyl record sleeve and he had it leaning up against a chair with a slide projector and he was projecting candidates for the cover photo onto this. And at one point, the he was showing them to the Beatles and the the chair got jiggled or whatever and the cardboard tilted backwards a little bit and they went, that's it. That's what we want. So, oh, and that's why it has that sort of elongated that look, look yeah. to it. Yeah, it's uh, you know another little thing that happens uh, that turns out to be, uh, I guess, a mistake of a mistake of convenience or a mistake of greatness. So and again, not even slightly obscure, you know. <laughs> 
but I'm glad to know this now. Well, like, Christopher, not- I, I feel as though, you know, you've you've been so generous with your time. I just had to give you as many <laughs> nerdy and obscure facts. And if you can sort of pick through them uh, at a Hollywood dinner party at some point, then please do. Oh, uh, yes, that's precisely what I'll be doing. <laughs> Listen, you have I, I cannot thank you enough for the generosity oh, of your time. It's, it's been. Oh, this has been fun. This has been a blast. Um, what are your final thoughts looking back on, on help and uh, the position it occupies in your life and, and uh, why it's special to you? I mean, of course I love the British version because it has all the extra songs on it. I don't have to skip over the instrumentals. I mean, at least we have remotes now so that we can if we want to. Um, but that it stands up and is an even better record than I remember first hearing. It's, it's a wonderful recording and it has so many deep connections for me, as you know, <laughs> I told you the story. So uh, yeah, it will continue to be a special, special piece of music in my life. Christopher, I really hope we can do this again sometime. So uh, you, you, you've been so generous with your time. I don't take that for granted. And, and thanks a lot. You bet, Paul. It was a pleasure. So once again, if you would like to catch up with Christopher Ward, find out what's going on, best place to start is his website, ChristopherWard.ca. That's ChristopherWard.ca. Do check out his podcast, Famous Lost Words, and you can find that wherever podcasts are available. That's Famous Lost Words. You can follow this podcast on Twitter or Instagram, a great way to communicate. If you have any questions to ask or comments, whatever, you can find me on on Twitter or Instagram. The handle is the underscore RomyCast. That is the underscore RomyCast. R-O-M-Y-C-A-S-T is the spelling of RomyCast. Uh, do join our Facebook group. I'm going to put up uh, some links to some of Christopher's work for you to check out. Do a search on Facebook for The Walrus Was Paul podcast ask to join and I will get that sorted out for you. We've got coming up on 40 members, so why don't you be the next one? Hey, you start small, you build from there, right? Uh, Be sure to visit the website if you'd like more information on me. The website is romicast.com romicast.com You'll find information on me as well as every single episode that I have done so far in this series, The Walrus Was Paul, and also uh, if you see your way clear to make a donation to support the show and keep it commercial free you can do that at the web page just click on the donate button and it will be all taken care of and if you don't already please do subscribe to the show via your favorite podcast provider and leave a nice nice stirring great outstanding review <laughs> it would be greatly appreciated greatly I don't know where that came from. I just thought I'd try an accent. So on that note, that wraps up another episode of The Walrus Was Paul. It has been fun. Uh, You're going to want to join us in a couple of weeks when the next episode drops. Julian Taylor will be my guest. He's a singer-songwriter who is just killing it with his latest album called The Ridge. So Julian Taylor will be the guest, and he is going to have a crack at Band on the Run, track by track. That is next time on The Walrus Was Paul. Until then, take care. Never get tired of being Beatles. I play the drums, but I play out in
Is he dead? Sit you down, father. Rescue. Take 12. Oh, there we go. Very excited. Can we just have a little less guitar in here for oh, no, 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 no. The bit that John finally got just after that, and we were both of the do what you want to do. Yeah, it's not bad that one. Keep that one. Market fab. <laughs> <laughs>